So hello everyone, welcome back to the NP Studio. Um, another, you know, really special guest in the house with us today. Um, we have Mr. Ankur Goyal, uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Empira. Um, and just to give a little bit of context um, into Ankur's life and also the company's life. Um, so Ankur um, has been the CEO of Empira and he co-founded the company in September of 2017. Before that, he served as the vice president of engineering for five years at Single Store. Um, and he brings with him, again, just like all the guests, a wealth of experience on, on board. Um, Empira is an interesting company. So it's an AI platform that manages unstructured data such as documents um, and uh, you know by understanding the context and attributes of those like of that unstructured data it bridges this information into a structured format which uh, speaks a lot to automation taking you know getting rid of all the mundane tasks that we do uh, that surround data entry and a lot of other AI related skills that could be automated potentially um, so it's pretty cool that the work they're doing and we're really excited to have you here Ankur uh, how are you doing today I'm doing great thanks so much for having me I'm really excited about the conversation yeah, thank you so much. So, um, you know, to kick this off, I um, I'm a big fan of automation, and I'm also really bullish on its, you know, its its expansiveness and how its ability to, you know, uh, change a lot of things in the world moving forward. Uh, where do you see, like, like, what do you feel about automation as an industry, and do you think a lot of what we do today can potentially be automated, and and what all maybe would not be automated, and where would the sweet spot lie in the future with AI? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, so I, I actually became interested in automation as a kid. Uh, my parents are both medical doctors and, um, you know, they would work really hard and, and leave early in the morning and come home pretty late. And, you know, up until I was maybe like 11 or 12, when they came home, they were done with work uh, because they just wrote their notes during the day and then they referred to them um, whenever they needed. Uh, right. But uh, right around then, this new type of system called an electronic medical record started to become popular. Um, mm -hmm. And they actually went from like handwriting their notes to to typing them uh, in the evening uh, back into the system. Um, and, you know, that was kind of frustrating for me. Like, you know, I, I lost a bunch of time with my parents. Uh, they were sitting at home and, and basically doing this extra work. Uh, but it, it also is it's kind of puzzling. Like, you know, there's so many benefits to having medical uh, records and medical data uh, digitized. Um, and, and that's actually a big ongoing journey uh, right now. Um, but it, it really comes uh, severely at the cost of, of productivity um, as well. Um, and so I, you know, I think the, the near term for automation um, is actually in my mind kind of about the, the overall digital transformation journey and, and just one, but one very important piece of it. And it's about, you know, enabling digitization to happen, but enabling it to happen in a way that doesn't consume people's time. Um, and where we sort of fit into that is in the in the universe of, of documents, uh, which again, a, a super interesting world where most of our customers, you know, five years ago were sending, you know, paper invoices and looking at, um, you know, financial statements in, uh, for prospective loans uh, on paper. Um, and, you know, paper is, is no longer as popular, but all of those documents are now digital. And because they're digital, they're dealing with, you know, five or 10 times the volume that they were just a few years ago. Uh, and so I think the role of, of automation and, and where we are really proud to sort of contribute to it is um, in, in helping kind of this digital overload that, that uh, is uh, occurring as a result of digital transformation and basically allowing it to happen in a way that that keeps people very productive. 
Wow. Wow. And so um, when you talk about, you know, automating the entire process of, you know, digitizing documents and extracting information from it, um, if you could speak a little more to um, A, how that process works, because it's really cool for us to know just as, as a broad overview and B, again, you know, following up based on my last question, um, where do you see this like like automation in this space is obviously really prevalent and uh, has a lot of use cases but where do you see this entire field evolving into into the future where things that we might not think right now are, are you know possible to be automated could very well be possible with with the power of AI and the way in which it is you know growing um yeah i think those those two questions actually will tie uh, well together so um you know the the thing about documents um is that Unlike uh, uh, structured data, uh, there's a lot of nuances in documents. And a lot of these nuances are things that are maybe obvious for the human eye or the human brain, but very difficult for, um, at least historically, for computers to, to pick up on. Um, and so the key technology that makes it possible to read documents with a lot of accuracy is um, artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning. Uh, at Impura, what uh, our, our approach is a little bit different than kind of the pop culture version of AI. Uh, and the pop culture version of AI uh, is something along the lines of, you know, just like Google, let's go and train like a giant model that can understand, um, you know, everything about uh, everything and then use that model to uh, pick apart uh, documents. Um, well, I think that approach works really well for certain problems um, and even like parts of the overall problem of document processing. Uh, what we've seen is there's just so much variety in the types of documents that different customers have. Um, you know, we have a lot of mid-market physical goods companies like construction companies and, um, you know, like manufacturing companies uh, that are transacting on the supply chain as customers. And every single one of those customers has documents from you know, different other companies that they work with. And so that one stop shop kind of catch all approach actually doesn't end up working very well. Um, mm -hmm. And what Impura allows you to do is basically upload your documents uh, to our product and then actually in real time train a model with just one or two examples to learn how to extract your data and help you turn it into structured data that, you know, you can use throughout the rest of your uh, throughout the rest of your systems. Um, and so that's how we do it. And um, I think to your second question, like wh what is the future of this? I, you know, the, the one thing we've learned is that um, the, the role of AI is very much about making people much more productive than they were before, even with documents where the data is relatively structured and, you know, could almost be completely automated. There are always nuances. There are discrepancies. There are things that change over time. Um, there are decisions that need to be made about how to deal with exceptions. Sometimes you need to call the person who sent you a document to, uh, you know, clarify whether they meant A or B. Um, and so uh, although you can achieve a pretty high amount of what's called straight through processing, um, wow. which means like complete automation, uh, really what AI models uh, or machine le learning models are doing is multiplying pretty dramatically the, the speed and efficacy of, of people in the workplace. And I think while we're solving problems that are gonna feel like they're easy problems, you know, five or 10 years from now, um, the role of, of AI is going to evolve, I think, to, to help people solve more and more problems in this way. I think, you know, medical diagnosis is something that is super interesting where right now the process is almost entirely contained inside of a doctor's brain 
Um, oh, but yeah. I think the, the role that machine learning can play there is uh, allowing, you know, a doctor kind of like our users today are training models to read data out of documents. You could imagine a doctor hooking up a bunch of information about a patient and interactively working with the system to think through a diagnosis. Um, and the machine is really good at obviously like parsing lots of data, providing suggestions, narrowing things down, helping the doctor maybe see things that they wouldn't otherwise see. But the judgment and training and refinement that comes with the subject matter expert is at least, and what we've seen is something that you can't completely automate away. Um, and so I think there are a lot of problems uh, that can be solved with this kind of interactive uh, manner that we'll, we'll see a lot more of. And, and so that, that is a good transition to what I wanted to talk about next as well um, is is the you know where the sweet spot lies right because there's there's two sides of the argument is like um so Navel Ravikant who is the founder of Angel List made made a comment like you know some time ago I think he was on another podcast and he said that in a utopian world or where we are moving towards with AI right now eventually every single task that has an iterative connotation or that that somehow has an iterative loop to it will be automated and so while that would cut job you know that would lead to job losses that would also cause you know new markets to open open up in more creative pursuits and that is all that humans will then do because everything else could be automated that's one side of the argument and that speaks to you know um people being bullish people being happy about AI and also being positive about its impact on the world but obviously on the other side you have this argument that um oh hypothetically if we were to have like this general artificial intelligence in which case the ai itself can you know i mean not only an unsupervised or supervised learning model but it it knows or it can imitate free will or it can know when to make decisions what to automate when to automate it um and that might cause some serious problems you know like we watch in the movies where do you see because you have experienced it in your field where do you see the sweet spot lying in the future will it be more towards like according to you and based on your experiences will it be more towards the positive side or more towards uh well you know there'll be a lot of regulations propping in because people are scared of what ai could do it's just because you know you can train it so fast with so little data yeah no it's a great question um i i'll just kind of clarify where i sit on the general ai spectrum um I am someone who believes that general AI is possible, but not with the technology that we have today or that we continue to incrementally approve today, um, mm, okay. improve today. Sorry. What I mean by that is I think there are I, I there's probably like uh, a, a series of fundamental innovations that humanity can make over an extended period of time um, that could be, you know, 10 years, very unlikely. It could be a thousand years. Um, you know, it, it, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I tend to believe that with a series of fundamental um, innovations, we could reach something that's a, kind of sentient and has free will and, and uh -huh. so on. Um, but, you know, I think the fear mongering around that today, uh, it's understandable, but I think it's, it's just incorrect. Um, you know, the fear mongering tends to happen every single time there's a series of fundamental innovations and there have been um, in this most recent era. Uh, but the, the fear that people have is not that different than the fear people had back in the seventies when, you know, being a calculator was a human job um, yeah. and that suddenly disappeared. And, you know, the same propaganda type stuff was, was everywhere. Um, what we've done a very good job of over the last several years is figuring out this problem of perception. So computers basically now have eyes and ears um, and they have the ability to do uh, not logical, but some basic kind of like 
summary understanding of text as well. Um, so think of that as, you know, just like categorizing text or getting a very rough understanding of, of text. Um, and I, I think that there are enough smart people working on the problem that this technology is going to be used for good. Um, but there are some areas where having lots of eyes and ears, you know, and the ability to summarize a lot of text can be very dangerous. Uh, I think facial recognition is a really good example of something that can be extremely dangerous. It has been provably extremely dangerous. Um, it has been provably biased and racist in a number of circumstances. And so I think those are the kinds of challenges that we're going to have. Um, but I don't think it's the flavor of something like Terminator, um, uh, at uh, least with the, with current technology. Uh, right. Now, I think Naval's point and the way that he framed it is um, pretty accurate. Um, my internal framework and the framework we use at Impira to think about machine learning is that it's most effective where you can have an inexpensive feedback loop. Um, and so I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, Google Maps is an example of something that has a very inexpensive feedback loop. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, let's say you're trying to go you know, from your house to the grocery store. There might be 10 different routes to get there. And Google Maps uses machine learning to try to suggest which route is going to be the most uh, efficient. Um, now, it, if it happens to suggest a route that's like second or third best, then you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like you still reach the grocery store, you might get there one or two minutes later than you'd hoped. And Google now was able to collect some data about the fact that its prediction wasn't the optimal prediction. And so that's a pretty inexpensive uh, feedback loop. Um, I think one of the challenges for self-driving cars, uh, which is, you know, sort of like a related problem, um, is that the feedback loop is extremely expensive. So a self-driving car, the machine learning model, might be making a decision about whether to turn uh, or continue going straight. Um, and the cost of making an incorrect decision there could be you know, something fatal uh, for, for a human. And so I, you know, that, that's an example where the feedback loop is very expensive. And so the cost of actually implementing machine learning for the problem is, is, is very high. Um, and you know, that, uh, to his point about things that are iterative, things that are iterative tend to have pretty fast feedback loops. Documents are a great example, right? You get hundreds, if you're an average business, you, you might get hundreds of documents a day. Uh, a product like Impura might parse, you know, all of them and then say, hey, uh, I was having some trouble with these three documents. Uh, you might, you know, review them, uh, click a few times, um, and then Impura can learn from that, you know, in real time and, and improve itself. And that's pretty inexpensive. Um, uh, and so I think where you think about problems that that are very iterative um, and uh, do ha and have inexpensive feedback loops, I think they will be automated. Um, I don't think they'll be completely automated, though, because it still requires human judgment to come in and help the model continue to iteratively learn. Um, and so the you know, the the the. I, the question I think a lot about, um, it's it's less about like people not doing stuff and it's more about the fact that, you know, each individual human will be able to do a lot more. Um, yeah. And one way of looking at that is, of course, that there will be fewer jobs. Uh, but I, I think history has, has shown that, um, you know, compared to how productive we were a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, uh, we, we do have the capability to actually also be more productive. Um, and it's it's not going to be easy to figure all these things out. But I, I remain optimistic that, um, you know, people who are able to just accomplish a lot more 
because of the presence of machine learning and, and AI, um, are going to be able to basically multiply the, the productivity that, that we're able to do as, um, as humans. That is quite insightful and a great, great sum summary of, um, of what even, I, I had a lot of thoughts in my head about this as well, but I think just sticking to the thesis of being able to do a lot more in a lot less and in a safe space, uh, just as you said, as an expensive feedback loops, I think that's a great way of talking about the, the positive potential of AI um, just, just brings forth a lot of hope into the future and, and a lot more as uh, into what we can do. And even about employment, right? Like we've had so many revolutions and like technological innovations and booms that have eventually led to more and more employment. I mean, the global employment rate has increased over time. Um, so it just speaks to the fact that the inevitability of this technological growth just could open up a lot more possibilities that might not exist now, but, you know, will potentially in the future. Um, and I think AI is paving a path for that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think moving on, I wanted to do a little bit of a dive into, um, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've recently been, you know, really fond of, um, you know, NLP models, so like natural language processing, and I was looking into the GPT-3 framework. Um, I was wondering if what all into that whole stack of technology do you use? And if you could maybe elaborate a little bit about like NLP and its potential, because obviously there's a lot of, uh, you know, textual, non-textual data out there that needs inferencing processing and uh, big companies are doing that on a daily basis and are learning from them, them own models, as you said. But um, where do you see this field going? Because I think NLP has become an industry in itself um, and models like the GPT-3, which just to give uh, our viewers a bit of context is I think the largest neural net trained with over 175 billion parameters. So um, yeah, what do you think about that? And you know, where do you see the future of this, this subset of, of AI? Yeah, I think um, so. First of all, I think GPT three is is incredibly cool, and if if uh, if you haven't played with it, um, it's really fun to actually go uh, to OpenAI's um, website, and now they allow you to actually sign up and, and play with it. It's just fascinating to see the kinds of things it's able to do, um, know, right? and try to try to get it to mess up, and sometimes it does, and and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think what uh, that architecture um, is. Uh, it's it's essentially like confirmation bias at incredible scale. Um, and, and as an engineer, I think um, one way of kind of thinking about it is uh, if you've ever talked to a recruiter um, at a, a tech company, like, you know, you, you'll, you'll be working at Microsoft this summer, for example. I'm sure you spoke to the recruiters and you talk to them about technology. Um, the good recruiters are really good at talking about um, the programming languages that a project uses or some of the, the technical projects that interns last summer, for example, were able to do. Um, and they're able to do that because they immerse themselves in what engineers are talking about. They talk to lots of engineers. They think about, you know, what engineers care about when you communicate with them and so on. Um, but, you know, uh, for the most part, um, even the very best recruiters are not technical and they don't, um, they might talk to you about how, uh, you know, a team re-architected a project and used Python or, or something, but they don't have a, a sort of really deep understanding of, of what that means. Um, and, and so if you kind of think of it with that framework uh, in mind, um, it becomes clear that certain tasks are, um, are, are really possible um, and, and can be done very scalably with the level of understanding that something like GPT-3 has. And, the, you know, that's like the recruiter in this analogy. Um, and then there are other tasks that require 
kind of a deeper understanding of language or a deeper understanding of technology. And those are the kinds of things that um, engineers, or I would say, uh, at least today, uh, humans or more specially designed models or software uh, need to understand. And so um, with, with that, you know, GPT-3 and that kind of general movement of large pre-trained transformers, um, mm -hmm. I think it essentially solves one giant piece of the puzzle, um, but it doesn't kind of solve everything. Um, and, you know, when a new fancy technology comes out, our, our inclination as a tech community is always to hope and wonder that it solves everything. Um, yeah. I think it's... it. And yet on the other extreme, there are people that say this is stupid or, you know, this doesn't do anything or it's just a gimmick. Um, I tend to sit somewhere in between, which is like, wow, this is super cool. Let's start to understand what problems it can reliably solve um, and 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 take advantage of it. Um, and so, you know, one way that we take advantage of not GPT-3 specifically, but uh, a model that uses uh, this kind of large scale transformer architecture is to uh, essentially... Um, uh, if you recall earlier, I mentioned that Impira's models learn on customers' documents. Um, and we're able to do that because we, we don't use something <clears throat> that's a big pre-trained model with a high number of parameters. We use a, a different kind of model called a generative model that actually tries to learn how you got from the data to the document. And it's able to do that with a very small number of parameters and a bit of a more complex underlying model. Um, and that thing has some amazing advantages, right? You can teach it with a small number of data points. But one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't have this kind of pre-existing knowledge about uh, documents that's uh, pretty, pretty valuable. So, you know, if we see an invoice, for example, and we see a financial statement, um, our model doesn't know, it can't look at the words uh, in the invoice or that specific part of our model um, yeah. to be more precise. It can't necessarily look at, or glance at an invoice and say, huh, you know, this kind of looks like an invoice um, or glance at uh, the financial statement and say, huh, you know, this kind of looks like a financial statement. Let me treat it yeah. this way. Um, and we're, we're now actually using a large scale transformer model to help us with that kind of task. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of a task where looking at a very broad set of documents and, and, and you know, developing some, you know, intuition, if you will, about some of their characteristics and then uh, leveraging that to speed up the uh, training process and setup process and so on uh, of using our product is, is super valuable. Wow. Um, yeah, no, I, I have been, you know, truly fascinated by its workings, especially checking out not only GPT-3, but other NLP models as well within this space. And um, yeah, lots more to learn from what you said as well about transform transformers and, you know, generative models. Um, it's it's interesting how how they get adopted and um, like come to think of like oh this obviously the technical side of this which is amazing and um, gives a gives a lot of hope to us as I said before into what could be possible in unleashing these massive possibilities because let's say you know take GPT three represents essentially all of the internet and and all of the textual or, or whatever written content is there on on the web um, but. I wanted to talk about the other side, which I think you briefly, you know, mentioned in one of your earlier statements where um, it's, you know, this bias coming in. So it's a large confirmation bias outlet. And there's this popular debate going on, right, since the past few years about um, how, uh, you know, algorithmic bias or how we are we are making models um, that have 
like you know underlying like, like like the building blocks the underlying building blocks have some elements of bias just involuntarily encoded in them um and and referencing just a documentary that i recently watched it's called coded bias and i think there's an there's a researcher in mit whose name is joy Palumbini who uh did an experiment here and i think that was about racial bias but there's a lot all all sorts of bias that pops into this and so one wonders whether like we we are expediting a lot of tasks and we are making ourselves a lot more productive and i'm sure there's a few things where there is no black and white and it's it's more just like oh uh something like you know scanning data from documents which is just like oh whether you can do it or not but there's a lot of other things whether that's facial recognition or voice recognition or anything like that which they have like an ethical argument or or some sort of a moral stance to them as well so do you see ai potentially removing this barrier like could we but like potentially create a model that could be free of biases or or where do you see like the role of bias factoring factoring in maybe for the positives or negatives of ai just in general yeah no i it's a great question um and i think there's you know we could probably spend another uh, uh few hours you know talking <laughs> even just about this but i would say um maybe a couple uh things about how i think about it uh first um humans and machine learning models are symbiotically biased, uh, meaning humans bias machine learning models. They run them on some data. Uh, they see what the machine learning model produces. They use confirmation bias to think that, wow, this thing must understand, you know, ABC topic that is potentially very abstract. Um, and then they bias it further by providing, you know, more data or uh, deploying it in more places. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I have a maybe a kind of pessimistic uh, view of of this bias thing, which is that um, machine learning models are are, are almost like a, um, a black hole for humans to produce bias and 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 sort of revel in it. Um, and then I think there are two uh, two components to bias, and and they have very different um, I think implications and potential solutions. Uh, the first is the ethical one. Um, and uh, the second, I would say, is like the enterprise business automation one. Uh -huh. um, I, I, I definitely know more about the latter, but uh, I'd say, you know, on the ethical side, um, it's one of those things where I think AI has the, the opportunity to remove a lot of bias that exists in, um, you know, the decision making that people have, or it has the opportunity to multiply it and make it, you know, much, much worse. Um, and ultimately, I, I'd say my personal view is that um, there are not enough machine learning practitioners who, uh, frankly, care or think a lot uh, deeply about the ethical nature of, um, uh, of the problem. And that's not to say the average machine learning re uh, researcher doesn't. It's just to say that there aren't enough of them. Like there are not enough people that uh, spend the time to deeply understand how the machine learning models they're working with uh, are trained. If you look at most of the academic junk that's produced um, on archive, it's uh, you know people taking work that others have done, retraining it on a data set in a non-reproducible way, and then publishing it without peer review on Hacker News and generating kind of pop interest in, in what they've done. And that's you know in and of itself. Um, uh, I think reflective of the the types of biases and uh, lack of rigor that can lead to really bad outcomes. And so, you know, I, I would say like the optimistic side of this is uh, with the right um, with the right uh, research effort and the right brains 
you know, properly incentivized, whether it's government or whether it's uh, the private sector to actually, um, you know, aggressively solve and, and think through the problem of bias uh, for problems where AI can be used and um, bias is relevant. I think it can be solved, but it's going to be a lot harder than, you know, uh, sort of um, uh, everyday developers uh, training machine learning models on problems that potentially have bias. A, a very innocent version of this problem is kind of like programmers working without a, a real compiler or framework and just kind of writing really buggy code. Um, yeah. That's 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 what happens uh, for the most part in in machine learning. Um, uh, mo you know, most models that people are running and most models that people are producing are just incorrect, but they're yeah. somewhat incorrect. And so yeah. it's very hard to find out about that. And that's just unacceptable in, in the problem of, of, of bias uh, on the ethical side. Um, oh, yeah. then on the on the business side, um, you know, again, uh, I think there are companies, um, uh, you know, obviously, I, I think what we do is great. There's another company called Gong, which is a sales company. Uh, recording tool um, that we use and uh, they're, you know, they're a very commercially successful company that records your, your sales calls and then provides insights and transcription and, and so on from it. Um, but, you know, there are some companies that are taking AI seriously in the enterprise and providing good solutions to problems. But I think what, you know, 95% of people are doing where, you know, they're a, a non ML developer working at um, a company and they sort of sign up for hugging face and mess around with a few models and run it on, you know, 10 examples and subtract the two examples that didn't work from yes. the demo presentation that they give to their boss. Um, what they're doing doesn't result in, in pro projects that meaningfully drive production uh, enterprise outcomes. And a good analogy, um, I'm, I've been around the block long enough to remember when the same thing happened with Hadoop several years ago. Uh -huh. um, where, you know, people, everyone wanted to uh, up-level their skill set to be good at using Hadoop and put it on their resume and talk about it. There were large teams of people at enterprises who were off on the side because every enterprise had a Hadoop initiative um, uh -huh. playing around with data and, uh, you know, paying money to vendors and vendors that had really high valuations, but they weren't, you know, it ended up not really driving a lot of enterprise value. Uh, because the projects never made it to production. And I kind of see the same thing happening with um, a lot of the machine learning projects that are, are happening um, or people are experimenting with in the enterprise. Um, Hugging Face is, a, is, is an awesome uh, piece of technology and an awesome community and project. But I think um, it's not at the point, nor do I think it will be at the point where someone without some machine learning kind of expertise puts you know, translates what something like Hugging Face can do to a real world business problem. And so what I'm excited about is seeing companies that um, they don't just offer like machine learning platforms for enterprise users to mess around with models that are not actually going to drive results. They actually try to make the machine learning part of it work too. And they yeah. have real machine learning engineers working at the company actually trying to solve the machine learning problem. Um, and there are not that many of those right now because the venture funding feedback loop for those companies is uh, a little bit slower. And it's it's frankly a very, very difficult problem uh, to solve. Um, mm -hmm. But I expect to see more of them. Uh, and I expect to see those companies kind of outlive uh, the ones that um, uh, are, are a bit gimmicky. 
interesting and and i will you know definitely follow that up with uh, with your company's vc funding and just just you know your two cents on that but um i think what you talked about also presented an important pivot that i i just wanted to focus upon in this whole discussion that we've had about ai which has been really insightful um so you said right that when we were talking about bias in models and um it, it just being like a downward spiral that it's a symbiotic in nature which is so true um I, that makes me wonder, and I've been looking into it recently about the whole space of interpretable machine learning or just like explainable AI, you know, like, like, oh, yeah. I, I always wonder what's going on behind the scenes, you know, what's making these models act in the way they do, like making sometimes I, I you know, Loki, I, I feel like maybe they have free will, like, why are they going from point A to B within the model's framework? And why is a node acting in a certain way in a model to produce a particular output? What, do you think we are machine learning engineers or people who are just interested in the world of AI, even in an industry or just from a research standpoint, should look into explainable AI and should look should understand the model and not just use it as an accessory to get their work done faster. And maybe if you could just share what you feel or know about explainable AI, that would be great as well. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. I think um, it's important to remember that a, a machine learning model's job is for the most part, to convince you that it understands something, not to understand something. Um, oh, so, nice, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it's, um, I definitely enjoy the process of speculating what a model might have learned or what a model might not have learned. Um, but, uh, you know, having worked with our CTO, uh, who has a PhD in machine learning from Oxford now for uh, several years, um, I've kind of grown an appreciation for how wrong we are when we try to kind of think about what a machine learning model is, is actually, is actually thinking about, um, uh, un underneath, um, you know, as it relates to explainability, um, my personal belief is that machine, we're very early in the days of engineering machine learning models. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of, I know a lot of effort and a lot of attention has, has kind of poured into, the practice of training machine learning models. Um, and I think that's because uh, Google um, especially has done a really good job of uh, talking about the technologies that they've developed and um, you know, what it's taken to, to make them um, successful. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is if you think of the problem that BERT solves, uh, which is interpreting a search query, right. um, the feedback loop is insanely inexpensive the amount of attention they can get from an individual user is very low. Um, mm. And the cost of making a mistake is also very low. Uh, and yet you, they sit on a mountain of data, right, to solve the problem. And so the technical trade-offs of the problem um, actually work out really well to uh, result in sort of the piece of engineering that is BERT, um, uh, that is, is very successful in the context of Google. Um, on the, this isn't true for a lot of problems though. Like it's certainly not true for enterprise automation or for <clears throat> reading data from documents where explainability is very important. Um, and you know, we've actually engineered our models with explainability in mind. And wow. that not only, um, is valuable for customers when they're trying to figure out why something was correct or incorrect. Um, but it's really valuable for our engineers, um, as well, because when something doesn't work, it's, it's straightforward to actually debug the problem and make sure that we can fix it. Um, mm -hmm. We actually just introduced a new feature in our product uh, called Hints, which allow you to write um, expressions. Uh, so you can say things like, this thing always appears on the first page, or this thing almost always appears on the first page, or mm -hmm. it matches this regular expression. 
um, or something like that. And it's kind of like the inverse of explainability. Our model uses those uh, uh, hints um, and actually algebraically incorporates them into the training process uh, so that it can, um, you know, like ex explain its output in terms of uh, those 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 hints itself. Um, and so, you know, I I, I think explainability is uh, super valuable, and I think it's an, an engineering problem. But I don't think reverse engineering models that are in in some ways, you know, non-explainable mm -hmm. um, is is going to be the long-term solution to the problem. I think, you know, providing tools to help uh, people figure out what a model is going to do in various contexts and what the risks are, that's super valuable. Um, uh, and I think that's kind of what the status quo is with respect to explainability. It's like a safety control. Um, uh, is, is that the North Star for explainability? No. Um, I think the North Star for explainability is actually engineering models to be explainable. Um, yeah. and, and I think, I think, you know, um, uh, the only thing stopping us from doing that is, you know, uh, companies um, like us or company or other companies hiring smart machine learning people and giving them the tools to, to work on that problem. There's the, you know, all the technology is there. We just need to actually engineer machine learning models instead of uh, training ones that already exist. Yeah, no, I, I definitely believe that it's better to build from the ground up and not not just decompose a model to try to make sense out of it and just uh, you know like have that entire feel of causation you know coming into the picture right. um, but rather rather have it built into the model while you're building it and so perhaps i don't know i in a very different universe i feel that if you could potentially engineer a machine learning model and have it explain to the users how it's getting to a particular solution i think that's amazing and that would also make bias identification and prevention a lot more easier because it's, right. it's as if the model is detecting its own anomalies and it's it's learning to identify that hey i went about i don't know scanning this document you know scanning this face in a certain way and um, someone is now telling me that that way that I went through is wrong. So it's almost like, you know, the whole Google Maps analogy that which way is the most efficient, but now it has an ethical component to it through the lens of explainability. That is that is really cool. And I hope that something, you know, there's, there's some overlap that happens then something fruitful comes out of it, which I'm sure is in the industry currently. Um, but um, it's this is amazing. Uh, I would quickly want to transition into... Um, your personal journey um, and, and all the way leading to, you know, the venture capital funding that you have and, and where the, the, the company is right now uh, before we, you know, um, do closing notes. But so you have, um, you know, you've worked before at, at Single Story with the VP of Engineering. So wanted to know how was that experience like? What made you want to just as a, you know, the standard question, what made you want to leave that and start your own company? And uh, how was the process of securing venture capital funding? Yeah, so um, actually prior to Single Store, I was at CMU studying computer science um, and I dropped out after my third year uh, to join. Uh, it was called MemSQL at the time, but now Single Store. Um, and the reason is I, I kind of got bored uh, and I, I, I met the really smart folks uh, there and realized like, wow, I could actually like this is a better school experience, let alone <laughs> getting paid and being in San Francisco um, than than going back to school. Um, right. And when I joined, you know, I was, uh, I think, seven or eight years younger than than the, the next youngest person there, um, had zero experience um, and, and really didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but that's kind of the, the magic of 
the Valley and the magic of, of the company at the time uh, for sure is, you know, enabling uh, people to, um, you know, work really hard if they if they're willing on really interesting problems um, and and grow uh, out of it. And so I, you know, I obviously had a great experience there. I, I became the VP of engineering pretty quickly and grew out the engineering team, met a lot of customers, met a lot of venture capitalists, um, you know, still am good friends with and, and even work with some of the folks uh, there uh, today. And so a really great um, experience uh, for me and really reflective of how amazing the company um, was and, and is in terms of, uh, you know, d developing people and, and driving uh, innovation. Um, so it was, you know, an amazing opportunity. I uh, really enjoyed my time there. Um, and, you know, after uh, five and a half years of, of being there, um, my uh, uh, model in terms of, you know, uh, what I could do uh, over the next 18 months internally or externally, which is a question I, I always ask myself, uh -huh. um, is, well, you know, it started to shift um, where, you know, the growth I could have by by trying something else, whether it was working at another company um, and, and starting fresh or um, starting a company of my own uh, would probably be higher than than being there for another uh, 18 months. Um, and so that that, you know, that kind of led to my decision um, I felt like I had put in my dues uh, for for being there for quite some time and and right. you know joining as employee too um, back in the day, uh, and so I also felt you know comfortable that the team um, and product and and you know company was was well positioned um, you know with or without me there uh, to to continue. Um, so you know after I did that, um, one of uh, uh, now one of my investors at at the time uh, someone I had just met. Uh, is this guy named Ilad Gill, um, and he uh, uh, gave me this great advice, which was like, D I know you probably want to like start working on something right now, but the next time uh, you have some time off, you might be married, you might have kids. Um, uh, as, as a little fact, I actually am now married. I just got married a month ago. Um, oh, so he was right about <laughs> right about that for sure. Um, but he said, you know, take some time off and and you know see the world and and just you know learn a little bit about yourself. Um, and that was, you know, really great advice, um, especially because from the age of 21 to the age of 27, I literally did nothing other than work. I worked, you know, every day of every weekend. Um, I worked, you know, at least eight hours a day. I traveled like crazy, but I traveled for work. Um, and so I finally got some time to, you know, be bored, uh, go to the doctor. I, I traveled to South America, Europe, Africa, um, I, you know, spent some time with uh, my really great friends. Um, my brother actually happened to graduate that uh, January as well. So he was able to come on a very long trip to South America with me, which was, you know, those are experiences that um, genuinely, you know, change you and, and last a lifetime. Um, and at the end of the six month period, I actually met um, my now wife uh, uh, the, uh, in, the, in the morning for coffee uh, the same day that I met the folks at Lightspeed for lunch, and that kind of triggered the whole process of starting the company. And wow. so it was a very, uh, uh, you know, incredible way to conclude that period, if you will. Um, oh yeah. But uh, you know, I, I I don't think there I I don't think there's any chance um, I would have been ready for uh, a relationship or or um, you know warranted uh, any of her attention had I not spent that period of time on myself. Um, wow. And so, you know, after that, um, 
uh, a little bit about kind of the, the founding and, and um, the VC part specifically. Uh, right before I met her, uh, her name is Alana. Um, I had just come back from a trip to Kenya and I was thinking about this problem of querying unstructured data. Um, and I'd been thinking about it since I was at um, uh, single store slash MemSQL uh, before because you know our customers were getting really good at analyzing structured data, but they had a lot of unstructured data too. Um, and whenever they did, uh, and they you know tried to load it into MemSQL and query it, we'd have to say like you know sorry you can't you can't do that you know we only support structured data on the product. Um, yeah. And at the same time, you know I read all the cool sensational stuff about how AI was evolving um, and uh, thought, you know, wow, this AI stuff, it really works now. Um, uh, and, you know, I've, if you can't tell from what I said earlier, I've since learned um, how nuanced that statement is and how, <laughs> how challenging the space is. But, um, you know, I, I was really enthralled by all the cool stuff that was happening. I ran some experiments myself, developed some confirmation bias, you know, biased some models and got very <laughs> excited. Um, and, and so I, I continued thinking about this problem. And uh, when I went to Africa, I, I went to Maasai Mara in Kenya to do a safari uh, and I took a bunch of pictures and it was like a huge pain in the butt to find, you know, pictures of lions or pictures of elephants. And so I thought, right. wow, what, what would it take for me to be able to query this information like I would in a database? Um, <laughs> wow. And actually that night um, we, we had a red eye flight to Munich um, and it turns out, you know, it's, it's a real pain in the butt to get back from uh, Nairobi to San Francisco. So I had to stop in Munich and in New York on the way back. Right. Um, and uh, on the flight to Munich, I actually built a demo that took wow. my pictures, ran some vanilla machine learning, like vision models against them, indexed the information, and then a little kind of query interface to be able to query it. Um, and I met up with some customers that I had worked with before in Munich and in New York and, you know, like the auto space and uh, financial services space, media space and so on to get their feedback. Um, and everyone was was pretty interested in the idea. Now, it was very abstract um, at, the, at the time, but I felt pretty convicted about the fact that, wow, like everyone that I've talked to has unstructured data and they'd like to be able to, to query it and use it. But it's really hard uh, to do that. And so when I got back to San Francisco, um, uh, probably a, a combination of the energy I had for meeting uh, my future wife and the, uh, the cool demos and some customer validation, um, as well as you know my, my past experience, I think de-risking my ability to recruit people and build and test something out um, uh, made it uh, pretty straightforward um, to, to uh, work with some really great investors. Um, and that summer, uh, basically, I, I, in 2017, I raised money from Lightspeed and General Catalyst, uh, Barry at Lightspeed and Steve Herod at General Catalyst, mm -hmm. um, who are still on our board today and, and super active oh. um, investors, great people to work with, um, and, uh, and, and was off to the races. Um, and, you know, since then, we, we raised uh, more money from KOTU, a few years ago, um, but we've we've stayed uh, pretty lean and um, uh, taken our time to to find uh, you know which problems are solvable and why and and really make sure that what we're doing can scale. Um, and I could talk about that uh, forever too. But uh, <laughs> documents were not the first uh, problem we we tried to solve, but we ultimately realized that you know this is a problem that in many ways is solvable, is free of bias. Uh, the answer is 
very binary, kind of as you pointed out earlier, um, and something that uh, it's not trivial to solve, but machine learning in its current form does have the capability to solve. And that's kind of how we landed on, on, on this problem. Wow. Wow. That was, you know, quite, quite the journey there, Uncle. I think it's like, I, I was, I was noting down things for myself to learn as well. And <laughs> I think so many like implicit learnings that came out of this, like whether like just in a very overly philosophical manner, like, you know, like finding companies by first finding yourself or like, you know, like just trusting the process and like acting on your instincts and also validating like your POC with customers without having like, you know, like a proper product, because just to know whether, uh, you know, there's the demand supply match there and then going ahead and actually building it out without, you know, wasting any time or just um, feeling that that is what's needed. And you feel that, um, you know, this product has a good, you know, product market fit and you've done all the tests. And so just going out and building it and then securing funding, I think it's a, it's a great journey. It's an inspiring journey. And I feel that um, our listeners will have a lot to take from this, not only about the technical concepts to do with AI and, you know, the whole world that's envelops it, but also, um, you know, more personal journey as to how one can go about doing what they actually want and, you know, uh, pursuing their passions thoroughly. So um, it's been a true pleasure, you know, meeting with you today and, and getting to pick your brain on things. But um, thank you so much for taking out the time for this, Ankur. And um, you guys stay tuned for the next episode of the NP Studio Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much.